This is a Radio.com original. This is Coronavirus Daily, World on Pause. I'm Charles Feldman from the KNX Radio.com studios in Los Angeles. And I'm Mike Simpson. Even though we're all excited about the vaccines being out, concern growing about possible side effects. Almost 40 cases of this blood clotting disease following a shot of the Pfizer or Moderna vaccines. Killed a doctor in Florida. We'll look at how much of a role, if any, these vaccines are playing with these serious conditions. We talk so much about vaccines now, but what about testing? Do we need more of it if we want to return to the old normal? Pandemic, mostly bad, right? That's kind of in the nature of a pandemic. Uh, But there's one good thing that happens. We'll talk about what that is. The virus might be cooling off winter hot spots. But first, we talk about the vaccines and potential side effects. Dr. James Bussell, Professor Emeritus of Pediatric Hematology and Oncology at the Cornell Medical College, he's been examining uh, reactions to vaccines. So, Doctor, how sure are we that this blood clotting disorder is related to the vaccines? We're not sure at all they're related to the vaccine. Um, It's probably in reality might be, well, at least reported cases to the Adverse Events Vaccine Registry, V-A-E-R-S, that's online. Um, There are 37, but some of them, it's not very clear what they are. So I think there's only about 20 cases that are clearly proven. And there's lots of possible reasons, but we don't know exactly what the real reason is. Do we have any any simple to understand theories as to why? <laughs> the simp- well, everybody with the, um, the ITP Platelet Disorder Support Association advisors have communicated back and forth a lot on this. And some people think it might be different for the people who get the, va- who get the reaction one day or two days after the vaccine versus the ones who develop it in what we would think of as a more regular fashion one to two weeks later. So we think it looks like and acts like ITP, where you make antibodies against your own platelets. But why you do that, we don't know, and we're not sure that's what it is in all cases. Now, for the most part, is this something, if it does occur, that is easily, and maybe that's the wrong word, treated? Well... From my perspective, which is a very biased one with tons of experience in this area, um, I would say it shouldn't be that hard to treat. I think right now we would recommend giving intravenous gamma globulin and high-dose steroids, which are standard for patients with ITP, you know, idiopathic, not just um, COVID virus related, COVID vaccine, excuse me, related and then go to other treatments of which there are a number that are effective in ITP. So for a doctor who doesn't have your experience and didn't spend time in this field, would he or she know what to do right off the bat if somebody turned up? Uh, I'm not sure they would. We have an article that has just been accepted for publication in the American Journal of Hematology describing our experience and describing the first 15 cases. And I think that that makes some suggestions and been trying to be good about being available to relay our experience. For example, the TPO agents or something called vincristine or other um, immunosuppressive agents might be very good. Do other vaccines, uh, and let's take off from the table for the moment, uh, COVID vaccines, 
do other vaccines uh, n- uh, cause this particular uh, syndrome that we know for sure? Um, it, it's been well accepted for 40 or 50 years that vaccine, other vaccines can do this. And the original measles vaccine and then the measles, mumps, rubella vaccine have been described to do this. But like in this setting, it's very rare. And as you two kindly provided all the numbers, it's so rare that you don't know it's actually more common than would have been happening anyway. But it's believed that other vaccines do this. Also, I should have mentioned the chickenpox vaccine. So the most important question perhaps we can ask you, because there are a lot of people listening to this today uh, who are scheduled to get a COVID vaccine, this in no way, am I correct, should deter them from getting one. I would say absolutely not that the risks of COVID, even if, let's say, you're 30 and healthy, is greater than the risk that anything will happen with this. And as I indicated, it it's not really that difficult to treat this problem if it occurs. So if there's a question, I would say consult your physician or if you go to a hematologist, consult a hematologist. But thank you for asking that. I, we all definitely think the medical advisors of the Platelet Disorder Support Association that patients should get, that people should get vaccinated. And it seems that the great majority of the cases occurred with the first vaccination. There's only one so far that I'm aware of with the second vaccine. So I would go for both. Dr. James Bussell. Testing across the U.S. is coordinated locally. There's no big national testing network, but there are all kinds of tests, too. Some of them rapid. Would they be another key to reopening places like schools, office buildings, especially when not everybody's vaccinated yet? Dr. Emily Volk, pathologist, president-elect of the College of American Pathologists. Doctor, can we get things together now? And uh, what's a national testing program going to look like? That is absolutely uh, one component, one tool in the toolbox that could be used uh, to improve uh, our understanding of how much uh, disease is out there, right? Um, You know, we like to say that testing... Uh, makes our enemy visible uh, in this pandemic. And we are, uh, pathologists, I think, are, you know, the experts at uh, testing uh, for uh, a variety of different uh, diseases. And certainly uh, rapid testing is one tool that could help. But it's important to understand what the limitations of the various tests are uh, and their use. Um, So, you know, we, we need to use all the tools that we have in the toolbox. Well, and I think you're alluding to the fact that a lot of these ra- uh, rapid tests, in particular, they're antigen tests, right? And, and they're not based on, on laboratory analysis, so they're not uh, as accurate. Uh, but has that been the holdup uh, that we're, we're worried about coming up with kind of the perfect at-home test when maybe we need to just settle for ones that are kind of good? Well, with, as it pertains to at-home testing, uh, I know that manufacturers are really working hard to bring that uh, to the public. Uh, but, you know, the FDA has to sign off on that, and the tests need to be accurate uh, and reliable enough uh, that they don't just add confusion, right? Um, and I, I think that we are heartened with, uh, you know, plans to uh, expand the availability of testing 
uh, with the executive order to uh, that re that addresses uh, testing across the country. Um, test supplies have been a huge problem for laboratories and pathologists who run those laboratories. Uh, and so anything uh, that we can get from support uh, from the uh, feds to help us get the uh, supplies that we need to run the tests will help uh, the availability of widespread testing, be they uh, in at-home test kits, rapid tests at businesses and schools, uh, or the full-on uh, PCR uh, test uh, to detect the virus. I guess you got to just take the positives with the negatives, though, right? Because you can't always wait for a PCR if it's going to take a day. So if you're going to do the rapid test, you just have to be prepared that every once in a while, maybe there's going to be some some false flag and you're going to have to shut down for a day, figure it out, and then come back later. But if you're there for most of the month, well, that's that's a good thing. Well, you know, the thing about rapid tests is uh, with the rapid antigen test, if a patient or a person tests positive, it's very likely they have the virus because that test looks for that specific viral protein. Um, the problem with the rapid test are the false negatives. So just like we have been saying for a year, regardless of your test result, you still got a distance, you still got a mask, you still got to wash your hands. All right, Dr. Emily Volk, pathologist, president-elect, College of American Pathologists. So we told you earlier about the one good thing to come from this pandemic, and it is probably just one since it's been pretty awful in so many other ways. Rent is falling in some big cities. Cheaper now in L.A., New York, San Francisco. Marcos Segura, staff attorney at the National Housing Law Project. So, Marcos, why are the rents going down? The major driver in this is a lack in the supply of renters. Uh, and that supply is being affected by, you know, at least a few things. Uh, the first is the economic impact of, of the pandemic because of the job losses, declining wages. Many people who would otherwise be renting can't afford to do so. They're moving in with family uh, and, and similar setups, or in the worst cases, they're ending up homeless. Uh, another factor is one that's been widely reported, and that's people fleeing from cities, fleeing, uh, quote unquote, uh, into the suburbs. Uh, but I think an equally influential factor is that these rental markets like Los Angeles, San Francisco, and so forth, they were driven a lot by jobs and opportunities that weren't available elsewhere. And because of the pandemic, either those opportunities no longer exist or people uh, don't have to relocate to you know, take advantage of those jobs and opportunities. They can work from home. When we say coming down, how much are we talking in terms of the rent coming down? It, it really depends on the market. Uh, my, from what I've, I've read, the, the reports is, you know, anywhere from five to 10%. Uh, other markets is very, very, uh, it's much deeper than that, uh, closer to 20%. Uh, I don't know if that's a, a long-term uh, dynamic, uh, but it ranges. It varies from, from market to market. But there's also, as I understand it, the inverse happening, right? That people who used to want to escape the, the big bad city and move to the suburbs, now, when they move to the suburbs to get away from the crowded, crowded cities because they think they'll be safer from this and future pandemics, the rents are going up there in some cases, right? That's exactly right. And it's the same uh, supply side dynamic. So, you know, the supply of, of renters is declining in, in these major cities, uh, but that's increasing the supply in these suburbs and increasing the rent. Um, and one of the, the things that's going to be interesting to see moving forward is, you know, what happens in these markets when 
when they have this dynamic uh, in Los Angeles, you know, in the Inland Empire, San Bernardino County, those areas were populated by folks who couldn't afford to live in the cities. And now you have other people moving into those areas. And it'll be interesting to see whether folks that are currently living there have been living there for decades are now going to be uh, squeezed out. Let's, let's talk what people can do if they're already renting and they're still wherever they are. I looked at the prices in my building and there are units going for less than what I'm paying now uh, when I moved in a year ago. So can I do anything about that? Yeah, absolutely. And, and there's no tried and true approach. Um, if you're getting to the end of your lease or you're in a month-to-month lease, just ask. Uh, just ask your landlord if, if, uh, if it's willing to, to lower your rent. And the one thing I recommend is exactly is for people to do exactly what you did, which is to uh, do a little bit of research, get a sense of, you know, what is the going rate for an apartment similar to yours. And if you find out, uh, you know, the best thing is if you find out that a similar apartment in your same uh, building is being rented out at a much lower rate, that that means that the landlord is likely to at least entertain the request. And there's also concessions, right? Like if they're going to give new people four weeks free, maybe they should give me four weeks free if I'm going to stay. But but suppose you ask your landlord for all this stuff and they laugh. <laughs> yeah. so, so that's why, yeah, so that's why you want to do, look into it uh, and see whether, the one thing that people should keep in mind, these are market-wide trends. And, you know, they may not be the reality in your specific situation. So if, if you're in a building where your landlord isn't struggling, they're not finding it hard to lease uh, their, their units at the going at the at the normal rate, uh, then, yeah, you might get, you know, a laugh in response to a to a, a request for a reduction. Um, but like I said, if, if during your research, you find out that, you know, yes, in your neighborhood, rents are going down for similar apartments, even in your building, um, that that that's a clear indication that your landlord is struggling to get people uh, in those units. And it's probably in their best business interest to at least entertain either a rent reduction or some sort of uh, concession. Marcos Segura, staff attorney, National Housing Law Project. Coming up after this short break, the winter cold might be the healthier option than warmth and sunshine. Lots of people are looking to escape the uh, chilling winter freeze and fly south to warm up. But some of the usual destinations could put you in COVID jeopardy. Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher of JoeSentMe.com, he explained the problem to WBBM's Cisco Cotto. I mean, I am looking out the window at a raging snowstorm, the one you had yesterday. You've got clear skies but zero wind chill. Uh, any place sounds better than that. The problem is, is that two of the most popular places for folks from Chicagoland, which would be Florida and Mexico, have some issues now florida has been presented as a victory case for the for keeping everything open no masking requirements but when you look a little deeper in the numbers they're not doing much better than any other state they're one of the most popular states in the country and they have among the highest death rate and infection rate um mexico is simply a real problem they've they've been hit very hard by the coronavirus um, you know, their medical situation is difficult, uh, not some place like Peru or Ecuador bad, but not a place where you'd want to run to. So I think it comes down to, as it always does, Cisco, personal choice. Well, talk Will to you. 
do it. Hey, well, I'm, I mean, I'm just thinking, talk to the people here who are going, hey, I, I get on the plane, I get off the plane, I go to the all-inclusive, I stay in my room in the pool, you know, I'm not really hanging out with people. I, I think there's a lot of people who think they can do this safely, and, and yet the question is, can they really do it safely? Well, how how do we look at this, Cisco? Do we look at the raw numbers that say that, you know, 98, 99% of Americans will never get this? The simple reality of the fact is the more you interact in society, the more risk you're at. I'm not I, – I literally cannot tell anyone listening to do it or not to do it. But if you go to the – if you go to O'Hare or Midway, you will get more people than if you stay at home. If you go to get on a plane, you will be, if it's not a Delta flight, possibly – sitting next to someone you've never seen before. And then you get to an airport in Florida's or Mexico, and you run into more people. And then in the cab or an Uber or in the car rental, and then to the hotel in the front desk. So every is, step along the way adds risk. How <laughs> there's much just you people, want to right? accept, it's people. The more you're in front of people, the more you are at risk, especially since not enough of us are vaccinated yet. We don't even know whether if we've been vaccinated, we don't give off the illness. So unfortunately, this has to be a situation where the individual makes the decision of what's right and what's an acceptable risk for them. Certainly, if, if you're um, in a risk group in terms of age or have a comorbidity, I think you'd need to be more conservative. But conservation and being conservative gets tough when it's zero degrees wind chill out there. Yeah, yeah, right. Is it better to pack up the minivan and drive south instead of going to Mexico or the Caribbean, go somewhere south, Texas, south Florida, something like that, where you're not having to deal with the airports? Well, certainly that mitigates the risk of, of airports and flying. But then hotels along the way, Unless you're planning on never stopping, you're going to hit a rest stop somewhere and a restaurant somewhere. There's simply no way of avoiding people. And it's people that are the issue, not the place, not the conveyance, not the mode that you get to the conveyance. It's simply we are the ones at risk and causing the risk. And it's going to have to be a, a judgment individuals make. I, I do know some people in Minnesota who, instead of flying this year to Florida, will be driving. Uh, I don't want to make that drive. So I, I think what we need here, Joe, as we uh, as we wrap this up, we need everyone else to stay home so that I can go somewhere on spring break. I think that's absolutely, what we Absolutely. <laughs> we'll see if they'll listen. Uh, <laughs> thank you so much. Joe Brancatelli, editor and publisher, JoeSentMe.com. The World Health Organization now says it is extremely unlikely that COVID-19 somehow leaked from a lab in Wuhan, China, where the virus started. The WHO sent a team to try to figure out the origins of the virus. The team says it's more likely that the virus jumped to humans from an animal. There was speculation early on in the pandemic that the virus was either manufactured at or accidentally leaked from a lab at the Wuhan Institute of Virology, which has been involved in coronavirus research. We're on the Radio.com app, Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, and Stitcher.